the reading of the scriptures, reading all of the uh, chapter 27 of the book of Acts. So I invite your hearing and faith uh, the word of the Lord here in Acts chapter 27. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea, from there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus. And when the winds were against us, we sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia. We came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not give us or allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salamone, coasting along with difficulty. We came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lassia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the feast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempest, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kada, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. <clears throat> then fearing that they would run aground, uh, on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were uh, violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. 
So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. As the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosened the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to make for the land, and the rest on planks or pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When we think of the uh, fall, we oftentimes uh, focus upon uh, Adam, uh, his departure, of course, from the faith, and that we all fell in him. Uh, And so, as you know, Adam and Eve were cursed. But uh, this morning, uh, it's also good to remember uh, that the fallen world in which we live in is also under a curse. All of nature has been cursed by God. And think of the misery of that. It's bad enough to think of the misery of sin, the sin of Adam, but uh, think of the misery of a fallen world. That's why, for example, we have violent storms. Uh, I know it's popular in our culture to grasp the unsettled science of global warming, but storms are the result of a fallen world in which we live, caused by the curse of God. And I'm glad that we all do things as we should to be good stewards of the earth, but uh, man cannot stop storms because we live in a fallen world and there's always going to be dangerous storms. It's also, I don't know, poisonous snakes, um, mainly because they give me the willies. I just, poisonous snakes. Um, 
We don't think about that a lot, but in a land like India, lots and lots of children are killed by cobras. Uh, there's uh, mosquitoes that carry malaria. Uh, we don't think about malaria a lot in the United States, but certainly all over Africa, they wreak terrible havoc. Uh, and so I could go on and on, but just simply enough to say that the world that we live in is cursed, and that's why there's many, many dangers uh, in this fallen world. The theology speaks to uh, judgment. The world is under judgment. Uh, it reminds us, uh, all of us who are Christians, that uh, we have a Savior from this broken, fallen world. Uh, but it, it tells the world that there's a judge uh, and the danger of a fallen world. It doesn't tell the world about the Savior, but it does tell the world about the fact that there is a judge. I mean, I would tell you that if you're an atheist sailor in a small boat uh, in a storm at sea, uh, you, you give up your atheism. You may not become a Christian, but you give up your atheism. There are no atheists in foxholes. No atheists in small boats in, in the midst of a violent sea. Uh, men simply cry out to God. We cry out to the God of Scripture. And when nature has fallen and when violent hailstorms come, we know that spiritually we're protected by the great Redeemer. Our roofs may be damaged. We may suffer great harm financially. But it's a reminder that there is safety in the midst of the greater storm that's yet to come, namely the wrath of God. So thankfully for us uh, who know the Lord, uh, God can intervene and uh, will intervene ultimately uh, to deliver the church from this fallen, broken uh, world in which we live. But the first part of this chapter is about the judgment that's, uh, that's on the earth, that even, even Christians will, will go through, uh, so that nature threatens Paul's journey to Rome. Again, Christians do not escape the broken world. Paul's not going to escape this storm. He's going to be preserved through it. That's certainly a reminder, a beautiful reminder, that all who know the Savior will be preserved through the storms of life. Not from them, but through them. So at the conclusion of his civil trials, Paul is going to undergo this trial by nature. Uh, begins a journey in a very small coastal vessel. Uh, they transfer to a grain ship uh, in Myra and sail south to Crete, uh, ending up in Fairhaven. It's now the third quarter of the year, which storm season. Uh, Paul uh, knows that it's storm season. Uh, Paul respects natural law. By the way, so should we. Uh, God institutes natural law. Uh, thankfully, His providence can intervene, and it will, but there is natural law. If it's storm season, uh, uh, you ought to be very careful and respect nature, because nature can be very violent as an expression of the fallenness of the world in which we live. 
So Paul's going to witness to the sailors uh, about this fallen world and the danger of nature. Uh, verses 1 to 20. Let's look at uh, Acts 27, verse 10. And he said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be attended with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Uh, I know some of you have, uh, have been on cruises. Um, you're perhaps a bit antsy about going on a cruise when it's a storm season. Maybe you get insurance. You, or maybe you just do the wise thing and say, let's wait till storm season ends. That's what Paul is really counseling. Because he knows, he knows something that all of us as Christians should know. We live in a fallen world. And the fallenness of nature reminds us to be careful and to exercise wisdom and prudence. Uh, Paul gives counsel, but what does Paul know? They dismiss his wisdom. It's really, uh, really common sense, but it's a good reminder for all of us as Christians. Uh, God uh, gives us a mind. He expects us to use our minds. If it's lightning outside, don't go out and hug a tree. Not something that's wise to do. I remember uh, one year I was at Fort uh, Polk, Louisiana, going going through basic training. There was a, a young soldier that had a tent stake driven that touched the root of a tree. When lightning struck that tree, he got hurt. Bad things happen when it's lightning outside. So use your mind, use your reason is my simple point. Paul is attempting to do that. As Christians, we need to understand that God gives us a mind. Uh, We have a redeemed uh, mind. We should so use it. But the centurion, persuaded by the ship's pilot and captain to sail to Phoenix on the western coast of uh, Crete, and uh, they can winter there. So the centurion prevails. They set sail. And a violent storm comes upon the ship. Uh, The adjective uh, is that from which we have our English word for typhoon. And they're caught again in this typhoon, or to use another word, a hurricane. Um, Again, you want to sail on typhoons, try to get on an aircraft carrier. They can handle them, but be very careful if you don't. That's simply the reasoning of the Apostle Paul. It's also quite hard to get on an aircraft carrier unless you are stationed on one. But Luke, who is present, describes the violence of the storm in such a way as to strip any hope of survival whatsoever from all the passengers. Again, I've simply reminded of the fact that even these sailors are going to call out to God, some God, uh, perhaps not the Christian God, but just simply the violence of the storm. I mean, I would remind you that even atheists pray when they're caught in danger. Just simply the instinctive response, someone seeking safety from a violent world. On the third day, they jettisoned the cargo and some of the ship's rigging. It's totally dark, meaning 
They have no way whatsoever to navigate from the stars. Eventually, all hope... I mean, let's look at verse 20. And since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. And sometimes God works in that way. He strips our hope in nickels and dimes until we have nothing. Reminded of the words uh, over Dante's Inferno. All ye who enter here abandon hope. Because once you enter into the portals of hell, there is no return whatsoever. Abandon hope. That's that's what's occurring on this uh, ship. It's like they're sailing into hell. And so they're giving up their hope because they cannot defeat the violence of defeat the violence of the storm. Uh, the verb kind of catches you, at least it does me. It's often used of spiritual salvation. They give, give up any hope whatsoever of being saved. And the context here, of course, is physical rescue. Uh, but it's an illustration of the totality of the danger. Um, and again, I, I remind you that the fall has unleashed incredible threats upon us. Uh, we've been struggling, have we not, in our culture with uh, a virus. Can't even see it, but think of the incredible destruction it's caused. Uh, I'm reminded of the incredible fear. People have just been terrified. What's, what's with that? The fall of Adam and the curse upon the world in which we live. And only God can remove that curse. Thankfully for the Christian, he does, and he will. Uh, Let's remind ourselves of this from uh, the Apostle Paul, Book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 19 to 22. Paul is reminding us of this theology the fallenness of the world. For the anxious longing of the creation awaits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the sons of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So with the literary device of personification, Paul has this fallen world and all of the violence that it's been subjected to crying out as a woman in childbirth saying, reveal the sons of God that we might be made new. Of course, again, it's a figure of speech. The world doesn't cry out in distress, but we can certainly hear its groanings from all of the violence that attended to the fall. Of course, again, the great hope of the gospel is uh, uh, God will restore the fallen creation. It's worthwhile to remember what the restored creation will look like. 
to quicken our hearts to say, Lord, you should hurry and come. Let's turn to a compressed view in Isaiah chapter 65. Uh, it's an allusion to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 to 9, but a very compressed view of the beauty and the majesty of uh, the world as it will someday be. Isaiah 65, verse 25. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food, and they shall also do no evil or harm in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. The Isaiah 11 passage, as you know, has the child playing with the poisonous snake that no longer is poisonous. The lion and the lamb laying down together. Because God will remove all threats, all violence from the redeemed world by His sovereign power. And again, that's the hope only of the Christian. That we will enter there. We won't abandon hope. We'll embrace it in the fullness of everything that it means. Be no threats whatsoever. No mosquitoes. No virus from whatever lab in China. Wherever. The beauty, the majesty of redeemed world. I've often thought, Will it be like Glacier National Park? No, that's chump change. I hope someday you can go to Glacier National Park. It's, to me, the most beautiful, majestic of them all. Elbow your husband next year, Glacier. But it's just chump change. The majesty of the physical creation that you and I will enter as the sons of God without any threat whatsoever. And that's the end state of the new creation. Isaiah 65.25 or Isaiah 11 verses 6-9. to nine. I would remind you once again, the world has no hope whatsoever of that. Its hope is in, I don't know, a new vaccine. I'm all for vaccines, but just there'll be something else. Another day, another storm. When I was a little boy, uh, we, uh, we, uh, we played in the DDT trucks that would drive around the village of which I was a member of. DDT to kill the mosquitoes. I personally was thankful for DDT, but there's something else. There's always a mosquito that's going to be around because of the fallenness of the world, because of the fall of Adam. And our hope, again, is in the second Adam. The world has none of that. Its only hope is in a vaccine, a DDT, a cure for this, a cure for that, but they will never get it all. Only God can eradicate the vestiges of the violence of the fall. And the hope of the Christian is that he can and will. Well, Paul has witnessed of natural law to the sailors and the centurion. He gets Trump, so now he's going to witness of the providence of God in verses 21 to 24. Uh, in their darkest moment, God appears to Paul. Uh, if you will, an angel of the Lord appears to Paul. A reminder to us 
that God gives deliverance from the fall. Not only the fall of man, but the fall of this broken, trashed world. Let's read verses 27, 22 to 25 of, uh, of Acts. Again, returning now to Acts chapter 27. Reading verses 22 to 25. And yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there shall be no loss of life among you, only of the ship for this very night an angel of the Lord to whom I belong and to whom I serve stood before me. Saying, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you and all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe that uh, God, it will turn out exactly as I have been told. In other words, Paul is going to get safe passage. He's going to go to Rome. And everyone on board that ship owes their safety to Paul. Incredible reminder that the ship's passengers owe their safety to him. For us as Christians, we owe our ultimate safety to Jesus Christ. We owe our safety to someone else. Safe passage. It's a witness to the providence of God and again a testimony that sometimes we owe our safety to someone else. In this case, the living Christ. It's also essential that you understand the reality of the beauty of this text as they owe their safety as a gift from God. Notice verse 24. God has granted you and all those who are sailing with you safe passage. The gifts of God. God gives out of His sovereign grace. The greatest uh, gift He gives is uh, sovereign grace that redeems and secures the spiritual souls of His people. But in this case, it's going to intervene in nature. Uh, God establishes natural law, but God can trump natural law as a manifestation of His power. It's really the classical definition of a miracle. There's nature, but God can intervene at any point He wills to because He commands and controls nature. Uh, it's also a reminder uh, that God is sovereign over nature. Thank God. In the ancient Near East, Baal was the storm god. Christian theology, Jesus is the storm god. He controls the storms. Great text in the Talmud that He rides the clouds. This master of the clouds and of all the storms. A great uh, conflict of this, as you know, in 1 Kings chapter 18. Uh, conflict between Elijah and Ahab. Uh, God sends a drought because of the idolatry of the nation. Who sends the drought? God does. Who stops the cloud? God does. And then, when He wills, He sends rain. Who sends the rain? God does. God commands nature. Beautiful reminder for me is uh, uh, another prophet to the Gentiles, Jonah. I'll turn to Jonah chapter 1. Something of a parallel of the Apostle Paul. Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. Jonah was also a prophet to the Gentiles, but he doesn't want to go because he knows God is powerful to save even Gentiles. 
And he doesn't want to see Gentiles saved. Jonah, in a certain sense, is physical Israel, refusing to obey the God of Scripture. Let's read Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 to 9. They're out at sea, and the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. And there was a great storm on the sea, so the ship was about to break up. Who hurled the storm? God did. Uh, when I was in the army, we was engaged in crew-served weapons. In other words, weapons that commanded a crew to serve them. Just simply, what I see here is God says, storm, go attack Jonah's boat. And immediately a storm attacks the boat that Jonah's in. Even the, even the storms of life obey God. And the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God. And again, no, no atheists in small boats caught in storms. And they threw their cargo, which was in the ship, into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lay down, fallen sound asleep, because Jonah knows that God is the storm God, not Baal. So the captain approached him and said, How is it you're sleeping? Get up and call your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. And each man said to his mate, come, let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots and the lots fell to Jonah. Think of the, think of the, the possibility of that occurring. In the storm, storm tossed ship, they're casting lots. It falls to Jonah. Imagine that, just by chance. Just by the fluke of nature. There are no flukes of nature and there is no chance. It falls to Jonah because God is after Jonah, who was to be a prophet to the Gentiles. And they said to him, tell us now on whose account this calamity has struck us, and what is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and from what people are you? And he said to them, I Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. The confession of Jonah. Very quickly, verse 15. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. That God can intervene because he is in command of it all. A beautiful uh, reminders of something of this in uh, Matthew chapter 8, verses 24 to 27. Apostles and our Savior. Uh, or in a boat, uh, it's caught in a violent storm. Uh, our Lord is exhausted, expression of the truth of His humanity, and He falls asleep. Who can sleep in a storm? Our Lord can. Why can He sleep so soundly? Because He commands the seas. He knows what's going on. He commands the nature. He's the God of the clouds. Matthew chapter 8, verses 24 to 27. There arose a great storm. They're terrified. They wake him up. Save us, Lord, we're perishing. He said to them, why are you so timid, little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And the men marveled, saying, what kind of a man is it that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now think about that. Think about 
man in his pomp and circumstances standing on a seashore hurling commands at a typhoon saying stop. Of course nothing happens except the typhoon comes. Only Jesus can do that. Jesus hurls the storm and when He's finished with it, He commands it to stop. My friend, that is someone to reckon with. That's not just anyone that can do that. It's the Lord High God, Jesus Christ, who's the true storm God. More, more beautiful account to me personally is in Matthew 14. Uh, Jesus wants to be left alone. We all feel that way sometimes, don't we? Just give me some personal time. So he sends his disciples and they get in a boat and they, they go to sea. And there's a great storm. Imagine that. It just arose from nature. No, at some point, Jesus said, storm, go attack the boat of my apostles. Didn't arise by chance. Again, I understand the science. These storms form off the coast of Africa or warm air hits cold air. I mean, the beauty of science and meteorologists, I get it. But behind it all is the Lord of glory, of incredible power. He knows they're in danger. He wants them to cry out to Him and He comes walking on the sea. Who can do that? The Lord of glory. Uh, he, uh, again, Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 23, a great reminder, really the true identity of our Savior. And the boat was already many stadia away from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. In control of nature. Think of it. The first Adam brought ruin upon all of nature, upon all of the physical creation. Our Lord is the one who can fix it, who does here for his disciples. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were frightened, saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. Again, he, he uh, presents uh, Peter from drowning. Uh, verse 32, when he got into the boat, the wind stopped. Incredible power of our Savior. You know, we're somewhat in the midst of storm season in Oklahoma. I understand the natural law. I also understand who's in control of nature. Thank God that I know the Savior who's the true storm God as a reminder that He alone can deliver us from it all. Uh, two other instances Paul is instrumental in preventing loss of life. He reminded to us that everyone on their ship owes their safety to Paul. God's protection of His apostles is going to go to Rome and nothing, not even a violent storm, can get in His way. First, the sailors attempt to escape. Paul foils their plot. Second, the soldiers want to kill the prisoners. 
And the centurion prevents it based on Paul. But God is the ultimate cause. A reminder. Reminder to us. These great storms come. God is the ultimate deliverer. Our Savior. Who is the true commander of the storms of life. That our every hope should be in Him. Really, our safety uh, is linked to Him and His sovereign grace. And Paul reaffirms when he tells the ship's company, not a hair from their head of any of you shall perish, verse 34. Paul is guaranteeing their safety. How can they do that? Because an angel of God appeared to Paul and grants him safe passage. It's my reminder to you that they owe their safety to the apostle. We owe our safety in life to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that words speaking to great danger punctuate this text repeatedly. Uh, the word danger, verse 9. Damage and great loss, verse 10. The word violence in verse 14 and 18. Verse 20, all hope abandoned. And then, deliverance. The word salvation is used repeatedly throughout this text as well. In this case, it's physical. In our case, spiritual deliverance in Jesus Christ. The word salvation and its derivative are used multiple times. Verse 20, 31, 34, 43, and then the most beautiful of them all, verse 44. They were all brought safely to land. Now again, I understand that this text is not an allegory, but it is a reminder of the violence of nature. And God will see us safely into eternity. Let's turn very quickly to Psalm 107. Reminder of, of a nature, of God's providence and God's goodness to us. Psalm 107, beginning to read verse 23. Those who go down to the ship in seas, who do business in great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. And he guided them to their desired haven. Great is our storm God who delivers us safely to the eternal shores where the lamb lies down with the lion and the infant will play in the hole of the cobra. Christ our great deliverer. Perhaps one of the greatest illustrations of all of this uh, is uh, in a name of which most of us are familiar, John Newton. Uh, at age 11, imagine that, he put out to sea as an apprentice sailor. As he grew older, he strayed from the religious teachings of his mother. Came a slave trader. At one point, his father put out word to his friends in Liverpool to search for his son and to bring him home. 
John was found was returning on a ship called the Greyhound. Bored as on occasion sailors are, Newton began reading imitations of Christ by Thomas Akempis, a classic study in the warnings of God in judgment. Uh, disturbed by the warnings, uh, Newton threw it aside, paid it no attention. The next morning, the Greyhound was struck by a violent storm. He prayed, Lord, have mercy on us. Uh, the ship limped into Liverpool Harbor, but there was a different John aboard. Because Newton had come to faith and escaped the violence of the true storm God to land safely in the port of Liverpool. The storm, if you will, broke his sense of safety and security and drove him to seek safety in Christ. But I would remind you, we live in a very dangerous world. Um, nature can be very violent. We have many blessings of modern day science, but still a dangerous world. God is the ultimate haven of safety in Jesus Christ, His Son. And the violence of the winds of judgment cannot get at us because we're safe in Him. The rest of his life, interestingly enough, Newton prayed and fasted on the anniversary of that storm. What's the powerful impression his salvation left upon him? He wrote the inscription near his grave. It reads, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. That is a great testimony from John Newton. My friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. Um, you may escape all the storms of life. You will not escape the storms, the judgment of God. That can only be had in Jesus Christ. Heed the advice of John Newton, the Apostle Paul. Men who owe their safety to the Lord Jesus Christ, who delivers all His own to the sunlit, glorious shores of the majesty of an unchangeable, eternal, glorious creation made new by the sovereign power of the true God of heaven. If you don't know that Savior, may God in His power chase you to the only arms of safety that you might seek your salvation in Him. And for all of us who know Him, perhaps like Newton, we should pray and fast on the day that God saved us. And if we don't know that day, perhaps you've forgotten it. 
of the majesty of it should never lose its hold on you because of all that it means to be safe before a terrifying God. And yet, who makes us safe in His glorious Son, Jesus Christ.